Hello, fellow peacemakers. Welcome to Make Peace Not Be, a fun and informative podcast about making peace with yourself and the world. I'm your host, Lily, and we'll explore everything from climate change to plant-based to self-development and more. Follow me on my YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Make Peace Not Beef for episode highlights, bonus content, and giveaways. All right, let's start the episode. Peacemakers, it's me, Lily, the dopest chick on the planet. <laughs> Did you know? That's my new nickname. I got it from a podcast that I was featured on recently. It's called Generation Us. Go listen to episode 52 on Generation Us if you want to check out the episode that we did together. You'll see a very different side of me that you will not see on this podcast. A side that is more wild and fun. <laughs> wink, wink. Also, shout out to Generation Us. It's an amazing podcast with authentic and in-depth conversations you will definitely enjoy. So do check it out. Anyway, today we're back to another solo episode because, admit it, you've missed my voice. I know you do. First of all, quick life update. I got my second dose two days ago, which means I'm fully vaccinated for this year. Apparently, we have to get a shot every year for the next five years at least. (laughs) Jesus. So, let me tell you, the side effects for this dose was nasty. (laughs) Before getting the shot, my friends who already got their second shot were telling me how they went through multiple fevers and headaches. So, I was kind of already dreading getting it and also mentally preparing myself for it. Prior to getting my second shot, I was eating healthy, I was working out, I was doing 100 sit-ups per day to make sure I get my immunity up. Yes, I am the sit-up queen. After getting the shot, the first eight hours, I was honestly fine. I felt nothing. I was like, this is easy peasy. What are you all talking about? Like, I am good. But then I was like, well, is the vaccine even working? Because apparently it's a good thing if the vaccine triggers a response, right? That means your immune system is working. Now, be careful of what you wish for, because at 10 p.m., boom, I started developing a fever. So I crawled into bed and that was the beginning of a long night, (laughs) let me tell you. The entire night I felt like a woman going through menopause. At first I got chills, then I was sweating profusely, then I got a massive headache and a fever, and I felt so dehydrated the entire time so I kept drinking water, and because of a small bladder I peed 15 times that night, TMI. Anyway, I went through hell. But I survived it and I came out the other end and I'm feeling a lot better now, although my arm is still very sore, but the shot was definitely worth it. (laughs) I still don't look my best though, so we're gonna do an audio episode today for the first time in forever. Cause I still wanna talk to you, but I wanna do it in my sweatpants and not have to worry about how I look on video. By the way, I'm probably not gonna do another video episode until I get a haircut, which is next Thursday, and I am so looking forward to it. <laughs> it's the first haircut in almost a year. Also, I noticed that my episodes are heavily scripted, and whenever I listen to it, I'm just like, oh, God, that sounds so scripted. I sound like I'm narrating a BBC documentary. <laughs> so today, I'm gonna try, the keyword here is try, to sound a little bit more conversational, so we can just have a casual chat. Okay, so now that we're near the tail end of our pandemic, 
hopefully, you know, with victory in sight and global vaccination rates going up, with cities opening up again and returning to normal, we are now back to battling climate change, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, the battle's not over. If you didn't know, last year, global emissions fell by 7% due to the pandemic. But it will certainly rebound this year. Now, to make matters worse, Canada recently broke the record for its highest temperature ever recorded with a heat wave on the west coast that is so devastating that temperatures reached 50 degrees Celsius, or 122 Fahrenheit for you Americans, and the heat wave killed a bunch of people. This is terrifying because this is not Arizona, this is Canada. We Canadians pride ourselves in everything icy and frigid, from polar bears to igloos to tundras to permafrost. 50 degrees Celsius, or 122 Fahrenheit, in Canada is not only unheard of, but it is almost definitely sounding the alarm on climate change. And it's a sign that we need to drastically speed up climate action before we reach a climate tipping point. So today, I want to discuss a very important global event scheduled to take place this November in Glasgow, Scotland. And that is COP26, which stands for the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference. Let me brief you on the recent COPs. So I'm pretty sure you've heard of COP21 before, right? Back in 2015, where the monumental Paris Agreement was signed among nations to limit global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees. Now, 1.5 degrees doesn't sound like a lot, but back in episode 21, is climate change real? I made an analogy to our body temperatures to illustrate that if your body temperature went up by 1.5 degrees, you would have a fever. And the same with our planet. The slightest increases in the planet's global temperatures could have massive repercussions on our agricultural yields, sea level rises, and extreme weathers that could displace millions and billions of people. And sadly, two years after COP21, under the Trump administration, the United States pulled out of the Paris Agreement, which fortunately under Biden, the US rejoined. <laughs> so great, the US basically lost about four years of time to work on climate change. So that was COP21, right? Then COP22, 23, and 24 were basically a three-part session to finalize and ratify the Paris Agreement. Then COP25 in Madrid was when Greta Thunberg gave a headline speech, and she spoke up against politicians demanding for more aggressive climate action. Props to Greta! But the conference was kind of a failure because there was a large presence of fossil fuel lobbyists, as usual. And plus, all the big emitters such as China, Brazil, and US were all pointing fingers at one another, but no one really owned up to it. So sadly, nothing was really achieved at COP25, which definitely incensed a bunch of smaller island nations who could be potentially wiped out in the next few decades. And everyone was hoping to make tangible progress at COP26. That brings us back to COP26. So why is COP26 this November in Glasgow so crucial? Some people say that COP26 is our last chance to tackle the climate crisis, and if we don't negotiate specific terms and targets and hold every nation accountable, then we are seriously screwed, because we could potentially reach a climate tipping point very soon. And some scientists argue that we have already reached a climate tipping point. Several, actually. But what a climate tipping point is, it's basically a threshold that once crossed will drastically destabilize our planet to the point of no return, leading to irreversible catastrophic effects. So what exactly is the purpose of COP26? 
I didn't actually know the answer. So I went on UKCOP26.org, which is the official website for the conference, and unsurprisingly, the language they're used is pretty vague, just like every other climate organization. You know, they probably keep things vague for political reasons, if you know what I'm talking about. But basically, countries have to come forward with their 2030 emissions reduction targets at COP26 with the goal of reaching net zero emissions by 2050. Now, this is going to be the first time that countries' commitments are actually being put to the test. So under the Paris Agreement, every country had to submit a national reduction target. And this target had to be re-evaluated and enhanced every five years in a process known as ratchet mechanism. <laughs> and no, not the kind of ratchet you are thinking about. The name sounds gangster, but there's nothing ratchet about the process. It basically means each nation should ratchet up their emissions reduction contribution over time. So actually, COP26 was supposed to take place last year in 2020, but got postponed because of the pandemic. Now, Greta Thunberg actually said that she will not be attending COP26 this year because of global vaccine inequality, stating that she won't attend unless everyone can take part on the same terms, which basically means that she's afraid many nations will not be able to travel to the conference and be represented due to differences in vaccination status, in which case she argues that it would be undemocratic. Good point, Greta. I have to say, the timing of COP26 is extremely challenging this year given how many countries are still reeling from the challenges of the pandemic. Climate change is probably not number one on their priority list right now. Public health and safety is. It's tough. But in the grand scheme of things though, climate change could potentially lead to way more pandemics in the future. Oh. Did I mention all the frozen viruses trapped in the permafrost in the Arctic that will be unleashed when the ice melts? Whoopsies! Okay, so now let's talk about sponsorships for a second. Who's sponsoring COP26? This matters, right? Because the biggest sponsors have a vested interest in the outcome of this summit. In fact, I went back and did some digging. COP25 was actually financed by some of the biggest polluters in Spain, including Spain's biggest electric utility companies Iberdrola and Endesa, which might have contributed to the failure of COP25 because of, you know, possible lobbying under the table. This year, COP26 made sure to cherry-pick their sponsors, and they excluded oil and gas companies. And they actually picked Microsoft as one of their principal sponsors. Which sort of makes sense, because Microsoft has been carbon neutral since 2012 and has made a pledge to become carbon negative by 2030, so Microsoft has definitely got a proven track record of climate commitments. But looking at it more closely, Microsoft has mostly relied on external carbon removal to offset their emissions by investing heavily in reforestation and conservation projects to suck up their carbon. But they still have a long way to go when it comes to decarbonizing their internal operations and supply chain such as building more efficient data centers. On the other hand, Microsoft also has a digital partnership with ExxonMobil to increase their profitability in the oil fields. Hmm, so this part is making me raise an eyebrow. Is Microsoft helping the planet by pledging to become carbon negative? Or is it indirectly hurting the planet by helping ExxonMobil boost their profitability? Hard to say, but that is the state of the world that we live in with a multitude of conflicts of interest and gray areas. Speaking of fossil fuel, 
You know, I've sat in a lot of rooms with other climate activists, and the overall sentiment I get is this extreme antagonism toward the fossil fuel industry, which I somewhat disagree with, because I don't think demonizing the fossil fuel industry is the way to go. I'd rather focus on encouraging and incentivizing fossil fuel heavy industries to pivot their business model to be 100% renewable powered. As consumers, that translates to supporting companies that are moving in the right direction. And as policymakers, that means putting the right incentive structures in place. As a quick example, let's look at BP. So BP has pledged to cut its carbon emissions by 40% by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050. And the company has been aggressively ramping up its investments in renewables. Not that they have a choice, but these are ambitious targets, regardless from a business and operational standpoint. Now, BP's goal is to build up its renewable energy generation capacity to 50 gigawatts by 2030. What the heck does that even mean? How much is 50 gigawatts? Well, one gigawatt can roughly power 300,000 homes, so 50 gigawatts is roughly around 15 million homes. So very roughly, 50 gigawatts can power 10% of American homes, and that is a lot. So kudos to BP. Plus, no company has ever said we want to pollute the planet. Right? It's a matter of how and when to make that transition in a just and sensible manner. Keep in mind that we're usually looking at multi-billion-dollar companies operating in multiple countries, employing hundreds of thousands of people around the world, who have investors on board that care about returns. So, from a practical standpoint, it's impossible for them to abandon fossil fuel overnight. I think, regardless of a company's history in the fossil fuel industry, so long as that company is actively and aggressively taking climate action, that company should be allowed to sponsor COP26, in my opinion, at least. So back to COP26. My second question is: Are they going to serve steak and lobster and cheesecake at this conference, knowing that animal agriculture is one of the principal contributors to climate change? By the way, this is not a joke. Because serving meat and dairy at the world's leading climate summit is like handing out beer and vodka at Alcoholic Anonymous. It's not just hypocritical, but it downplays the role of animal agriculture in climate change, and it sends out a message that even the world's biggest leaders, who are so seemingly concerned about the climate crisis, aren't willing to give up their taste buds and sensory pleasure to save the planet. So why should the average person care? Which brings me to my next point. In the climate community, there's a common saying that individual actions don't matter in the fight against climate change, because climate change is a systemic issue that must be addressed by governments and corporations. So I completely disagree with this, right? Because that's like saying you can continue to waste plastic and drive a gas car so long as the government doesn't put a ban on it. Knowing the right thing to do but choosing not to do it is pure hypocrisy. By that logic. If every individual continued to eat meat and drive a gas car, what's going to stop the meat industry and the oil and gas industry from growing and polluting the planet even more, and from amassing even more lobbying power in the Congress? If consumers are actively feeding these carbon-heavy industries through market economics, then how in the world can governments and corporations ever curb emissions and solve this crisis? I just don't see how. Like, why would automakers make electric vehicles if everyone continues to buy a gas car? How would meat alternatives become commercially viable if everyone continued to eat meat? It's obvious. In order to stimulate supply, the demand side has to catch up. 
You gotta incentivize individual consumers to adopt a plant-based diet, to reduce their plastic consumption, to switch from a gas car to an electric car in order to shift market trends toward a more sustainable economy. It's trickle-up economics, plain and simple. Okay, so that was my beef there with eating beef. But going back to COP26, I'm genuinely curious what they're serving on the menu. <laughs> Seriously. It's not just symbolic to the fight against climate change, but being the world's leading summit on climate change, it speaks to the seriousness of animal agriculture, which is one of the leading causes of climate change, backed by science. Quick facts, 80% of the world's arable land is dedicated to raising livestock, and cattle farming is a leading cause of deforestation around the world. So really, you can't be a tree-hugging environmentalist and be against deforestation when you're also having steak for dinner. It just doesn't work. So now let's look at how is each country doing so far when it comes to their Paris Agreement commitments. Let's look at the major emitters. Last year, China pledged to become carbon neutral by 2060, which is a watershed moment given China's population size. Now, the transition will not be an easy one, but it needs to happen ASAP. Under the Paris Agreement, China is expected to peak emissions by 2030, and currently, it's actually on track to meeting its climate goals. <laughs> what a surprise. My dad, by the way, who lives in Beijing, told me that he is now seeing electric cars everywhere in the city, which I guess is good news. <laughs> if you didn't know, China is also the world's largest producer of renewable energy by capacity. But when it comes to the largest percentage share of renewable energy, Scandinavian countries such as Denmark and Sweden are still in the lead. Of course, China still has a long way to go to shut down all the coal power plants in the country, but I'm hopeful that it will get there sooner than later. Now, let's look at India. The good news is that India is also on track to meeting the Paris Agreement, but one of its biggest challenges in the coming decades is population control. India is projected to surpass China's population by 2027 to become the world's most populous country. So population control, often being an elephant in the room that world leaders shy away from discussing when it comes to climate change, must be addressed. Next, let's look at Brazil. So Brazil, unfortunately, is looking a lot more bleak. Currently, it is off track to meeting its targets due to heavy deforestation in the country, animal agriculture, and policy oversight. So Brazil has got to step up its game in order to meet the Paris Agreement, which sadly isn't likely at this point. This is where, once again, lack of political will is delaying progress. Then I want to look at Russia, which is another major polluter that heavily depends on crude oil, coal, and natural gas for energy and economic prosperity. So Russia doesn't seem to be phasing out of any of that anytime soon, although it seriously needs to. The good news is, quote-unquote good news. After all these years, Putin finally believes in climate change. I think. Well, let's just hope that he acts on it quickly enough, because we don't have time to kill. Finally, let's look at the United States. So the reason why I bring up the US last is because the situation is the most complicated. Now, Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement, and when Biden assumed office, he rejoined the Paris Agreement and vowed to take aggressive climate action, including a proposed $2 trillion of spending in economic recovery focusing on clean energy investments. Recently, Biden signed a bipartisan infrastructure deal, 
But critics have noted that the infrastructure plan falls short of the climate pledges that Biden has made, such as a federal clean electricity standard, federal investments and tax credits for clean energy, electrifying transportation, phasing out of fossil fuel subsidies. All of this stuff is missing. So now the Democrats are trying to push for another reconciliation bill that includes detailed climate measures. And the biggest blocker to passing all of this climate legislation right now, of course, is the GOP. Lots and lots of politicking, filibustering in the Congress. The Republicans are saying climate provisions should not be part of the infrastructure plan, while Democrats are saying, of course they should be part of the infrastructure plan. <laughs> Meanwhile, as a Canadian, I'm just like, if energy and transportation are not part of the infrastructure plan, then what is? Anyway, I try to emotionally detach myself from American politics, but let me tell you, it's been hard. It's frustrating to just read the news sometimes. But I'm glad the Democrats aren't backing down on the reconciliation bill, at least. We shall see where things go. So to sum things up, I look forward to COP26, but I'm also extremely nervous because of the timing. Many countries are just slowly coming out of the pandemic, and I'm not sure if they can readily shift their focus to climate action when the bulk of their efforts are directed toward economic recovery. But it's necessary. I'm hopeful that now with Biden leading the United States, we will finally see some serious climate action from the US and other world leaders. Because we're under a ticking climate time bomb, and while it's certainly a challenge for humanity to juggle so many different competing priorities at the same time, you know, with COVID and climate change and geopolitics, somehow I'm still optimistic that we are a resilient species and that we will make it through. Or we will all perish in 100 years from now and the Earth will start all over again. So good luck, fellow humans. We've got one shot to turn history around. And I hope I've convinced you to join me in this fight. If you're wondering, what can I do about this massive enveloping climate crisis? My answer is, one person can't do it all, but everyone can do something. The single biggest climate action you can take to help this crisis is to change your diet. Adopt a whole food, plant-based, minimally processed diet and don't waste food. That alone will make a huge difference because food waste and animal agriculture are two big contributors to climate change. If you're currently having meat and dairy seven times a week, two times a day, start by scaling back your meat and dairy consumption. Now, one of my listeners recently asked me, where do I get my proteins from if I don't eat meat and seafood and dairy? The answer is a combination of beans and legumes, tofu, seitan, which is absolutely delicious. It's actually wheat gluten, edamame, also a bunch of nuts and seeds and nut butters like almond butter and peanut butter and I make these super chocolatey and gooey black bean brownies and I eat them for breakfast. I mean, who doesn't like desserts for breakfast? <laughs> if you want the recipe, just go Google black bean brownies and you will get a bunch. Trust me, go make these brownies and you'll thank me later. They're also packed with protein. So aside from your diet, the next biggest thing you can do is minimizing single-use plastic. That means take your water bottle with you everywhere you go and cook more at home and be mindful of how often you order takeout and pay attention to the kind of packaging that restaurants use. Is it styrofoam? Which is, by the way, the absolute worst because styrofoam is not just bad for the environment, but it contains styrene and benzene. These are two cancer-causing toxic chemicals that can leach into your food. So it's bad for your health too. Avoid styrofoam as much as possible. 
Now back to packaging. Is it plastic? Is it biodegradable material? You know, make sensible choices wherever you can. Here's a sad fact: only nine percent of plastic actually ends up getting recycled, and the rest ninety-one percent end up in landfill, which is ridiculous. So minimizing plastic consumption is key. By the way, there's a material out there called PLA, which stands for polylactic acid. So PLA looks identical to regular plastic, but it's actually biodegradable. It's a bioplastic made from corn, and it can biodegrade very quickly given the right conditions. So recently, I went to a local restaurant, and I noticed that they were using PLA for their takeout containers, which I was pleasantly surprised by, and I thought it was really cool that restaurants are becoming more aware of environmental sustainability. And you know, aside from that, of course, there's driving less, you know, walking and biking more—the obvious. So that's what you can do at the individual level. And then the next step is figuring out how your career intersects with climate action. Now, this one can be a little bit tricky, but I believe that no matter what you do for a living, you know, whether you're an actor, lawyer, entrepreneur, marketing professional, consultant, software engineer, investor, doctor, filmmaker, artist, marine biologist, or a porn star. There is something you can do in your career to help fight climate change, directly or indirectly. It's a lengthy topic, so I'll do a whole separate episode in the future on how to help the climate crisis if you are X Y Z. But for the time being, think about your workplace policies, the clients you work with, the company culture. How can you use your power and influence to adopt more sustainable practices, and how can you use your unique skill sets to promote sustainability inside and outside of your career? Remember. Climate change at this point is no longer just a problem that concerns environmentalists like me. It concerns everyone, especially if you have kids or you're thinking of having children one day. What kind of future do you want your kids to live in? You want them to grow up healthy and happy, right? So start by creating that reality now with the choices you make today. Lastly, I just want to thank you for listening to this episode. As always. I want to applaud you for doing the hard but the right thing by learning about climate change and not turning a blind eye to this crisis, because it can become very overwhelming and emotionally taxing to gather the mental fortitude to confront this colossal challenge. But you're choosing to face the hard truth, and this world needs more people like you that care. So I just want to thank you for supporting my podcast and choosing to educate yourself on climate change by tuning into my channel. It means a lot to me. And if you're feeling a little discouraged by the magnitude and the urgency of the problem, well, don't have hope, because there are plenty of people like me actively fighting this crisis, and there are plenty more people like you actively learning about this crisis. And together, we will start a wave. And if you're ever feeling anxious or lost, just shoot me a DM, and we'll chat about it. I'm here for you, always. Otherwise, I hope you have a nice day or evening. And I'll see you in the next episode. All right, that's a wrap. I hope you liked today's episode and found it helpful. Remember, you can watch the video version of this episode on my YouTube channel, Make Peace Not Beef. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate for more exciting content down the road. Your support is my creative juice. If you have any questions or comments, please head over to my social media on Twitter, Instagram at makepeacenotbeef, or shoot me an email at lily at makepeacenotbeef dot com. That's L I L L Y. 
feel free to check out my website, makepeacenotbeef.com, for more information. Alrighty, peacemakers, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.